Man. It was back in 2014 when the Dutch Brewing Company produced an advertisement which presented their audience with the idea that Elvis Presley, John Lennon, Tupac Shakur, Kurt Cobain, Marilyn Monroe, and Bruce Lee are not only alive, but they're currently hanging out somewhere together on a tropical island paradise. And while I'm sure we all realize that this was a tasteless commercial that probably offended the families of these deceased celebrities, well, it's also a commercial which is based on the belief that many people hold, which is, is, is the idea that these celebrities are still alive. You might not know this, but the internet is actually filled with all sorts of conspiracy theories about the way that these celebrities faked their death and they're still living somewhere on the planet today. For example, you know there are many who believe that Elvis Presley is still alive? Yeah, many people believe that Elvis faked his death and and one reason given is because he was in trouble with the mafia, clearly. One researcher even insists that there are thousands of FBI documents which prove that Presley was an American hero who had to go into witness protection program uh, to save his life. Not only that, but there are also many who insist that Elvis is not only alive, but he's pastoring a church somewhere in Arkansas. Yeah, that's, that's out there. You can search it later. Yeah, there are those who believe that there's a pastor in Arkansas who is actually Elvis Presley, uh, you know, disguising himself as a pastor. And, and listen, this barely scratches the surface of all the theories that deal with the death of celebrities like Elvis. And, and there are many who believe these people are still alive. Well, in kind of a similar fashion, you know that the death of Jesus Christ has been the focus of countless disagreements and debates for nearly 2,000 years now? And while it's true that over the course of these 2,000 years, you know, there have been millions and millions and millions of people who have rejected the resurrection of our Redeemer, it's also true that we have a first century physician, his name was Luke, and Luke assured his audience back in the first century that Christ Jesus actually presented himself as being alive after suffering and dying on the cross. As a matter of fact, it's in Luke's second book called the book of Acts, where we learn that Jesus actually revealed himself as being risen from the dead. And according to Luke, he did this by presenting his disciples with many infallible proofs over the course of 40 days. Now that's truly amazing. It's with this as our focus that I want to spend our time today considering a few of these infallible proofs that Luke presents here in his gospel account. And according to Luke, uh, you know, the, the, the Lord Jesus actually provided his disciples with perfect proof of his resurrection. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that this perfect proof includes epistemological evidence. Secondly, we'll learn that this perfect proof includes empirical evidence. And then thirdly and finally, we'll learn that this perfect proof also includes emotional evidence. Well, with this as the outline, let's let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 24. You see, it's here in Luke 24 where we find Luke. He's actually recounting the way in which our risen Lord revealed himself with many infallible proofs. 
Now, as you continue making your way to the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that it was actually the day of his resurrection when the Lord Jesus first presented himself to Mary Magdalene. Afterwards, he revealed himself to the rest of the women who went to the tomb to prepare his lifeless body. And and so they were surprised when they discovered that Jesus had risen from the grave. And after that, he actually approached two disciples who were headed to a small town called Emmaus. And after revealing himself to those disciples, the Lord then simply disappeared from their sight. Well, now here we are in our text today. We find those same disciples. They're returning to Jerusalem with this report about Christ's resurrection. With this as the focus, if you would, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 24. We find ourselves here beginning at verse 33. Here we learn that they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now here in these verses, we learn about the way in which these disciples reacted after seeing our savior disappear right before their very eyes. And according to Luke, they responded by immediately rising up and returning to Jerusalem, which I'll remind you was a seven mile trek. They returned to Jerusalem and, and the reason why is because they wanted to share their experience with the 11 apostles who were still there in Jerusalem. And as they, they made their way back to Jerusalem, I have no doubt that they were wondering whether or not their testimony would be either received or rejected, just like the apostles had rejected the testimony of the women before them. And it's sad to say that the apostles of Christ, they were equal opportunity unbelievers. They had not only rejected the testimony of the women, but they also rejected the testimony of these two disciples. As a matter of fact, it's in Mark chapter 19, uh, actually Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Here Mark describes the unbelief of the apostles by writing this. He says, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. They didn't believe them either. The the apostles uh, didn't believe the testimony of Mary. They didn't believe the testimony of the other women. And they didn't believe the testimony of these two disciples who saw Jesus on the road to Emmaus. But this has the the focus. I want to take some time to consider the perfect proof that these disciples were actually presenting to the apostles there in the upper room. And if you would look with me once again at Luke chapter 24, I want to back up and begin reading once again at verse 33. Here we learn that they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. 
After arriving in Jerusalem, these disciples returned to the upper room where the 11 apostles were actually hiding for fear of being arrested. And it was at that moment uh, when they assured the apostles that the Lord had actually appeared to a disciple named Simon. Now, there are some who believe that these disciples were referring to Simon Peter. And yet it's important to notice that Simon Peter, well, he was one of the 11 apostles. So they're actually telling the 11 apostles that he had appeared to Simon. Therefore, we're probably not talking about Simon Peter. And at the same time, we're probably not talking about Simon the Zealot, who was also one of the 11 apostles. So we can rule out those two Simons. And and seeing how there's at least nine New Testament characters named Simon, uh, well, we can take some, you know, (laughs) we can take some time to uh, speculate and guess about which Simon we're talking about. But it's my guess that we're referring to a disciple named Simon who was actually the cousin of Christ Jesus. Uh, The reason I say this is because in our text last week, Luke informed us that one of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus was a, a guy named Cleopas. Cleopas uh, is believed to have been married to the sister of Jesus' mother Mary. And according to church history, they had a son named Simon. Therefore, it seems to me that Cleopas was probably traveling with his son, Simon. And the chances are, you know, Cleopas was the one telling the story and saying, hey, Jesus appeared and Simon can bear witness of the fact. And so that's a very, uh, very real possibility. But regardless of which Simon we're talking about, what we know is that Jesus appeared to these two disciples. That word appeared, which is found there in verse 34, Well, it's translated from a Greek word, which was used of those who reveal themselves in such a way that they can easily be seen. When Jesus appeared, he he wasn't, you know, trying to hide himself. No, he, he appeared in such a way that he could easily be seen. When Jesus appeared to Cleopas and probably Simon, he was revealing himself in such a way that they could understand this was actually Jesus. At the same time, the same Greek word is used in a passive sense in reference to those who are able to form a proper perspective of of the things that they're seeing with the use of their sense of sight. And with that being the case, Simon and Cleopas, they, they weren't confused about what they saw. They understood what they saw. It wasn't like, was it Jesus? Was it not Jesus? It's, it's like when people tell, tell us that they saw, you know, a deceased celebrity. I think it was Tupac. But uh, he gained a little weight since then, so maybe it was three Pac. We don't know. But, uh, you, know, you know, when you hear these eyewitness accounts, it's like, well, I think I, I, think I, I saw Elvis from across the room, but maybe not. Who can say? It wasn't like that. They had complete understanding that they had seen Jesus Christ. Uh, to prove my point, look with me again here at Luke 24, verse 35. Here we learn that they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, here in this verse, we find Luke sharing his summary of the testimony that Cleopas was presenting to the apostles, and we must not fail to notice that the Lord Jesus made himself known through the breaking of bread. Very interesting. He made himself known through the breaking of bread, or in other words, it was in the very moment when the Lord Jesus broke bread there at the table of Cleopas' house. That's when he appeared to them. He appeared to them in an undeniable and recognizable way. And in this way, Jesus was actually making himself known to his disciples. Now, for the sake of clarity, I should point out that the Greek word, which uh, was translated known, 
there in verse 35. That Greek word refers to the knowledge which is gained by experience resulting in understanding. And while it's true that the Lord's appearance provided those disciples with this experiential knowledge that Jesus was indeed risen, well, it's also true that this appearance provided them with the epistemological knowledge which helped them to realize that this uh, appearance was actually epistemological evidence, the evidence that they needed to prove that the Lord Jesus was in fact risen from the grave and therefore the way, the truth, and the life. Now, to grasp what I'm saying here, uh, you know, when I refer to the epistemological uh, evidence for the resurrection, uh, I want to consider an argument that Paul presents uh, to the Christians in Corinth so that I can help you to understand what I'm talking about. And so if you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you make your way to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to spend a second pointing out that the word epistemology it actually refers to the philosophical study of the nature, the origin, and the limits of human knowledge. Epistemology is the study of the nature, the origin, and the limits of human knowledge. Epistemology also refers to the relation between beliefs and the justification of those beliefs. So, you know, we all have beliefs about things, but are those beliefs actually justified uh, with, with other, uh, with, you know, with, with rational knowledge. Now, uh, as we consider this definition of epistemology, uh, we should take a moment to consider epistemology in the context of the Christian faith. You know, as Christians, we believe in the resurrection from the dead. We believe that in the afterlife, we will resurrect from the grave. And, and following the resurrection, we believe in everlasting blessings for those who trust in Jesus Christ. This is our belief. But is the belief justified? That's an epistemological question. Is our belief in the resurrection and the blessings to follow, is it epistemologically sound? You know that there are those who reject the, the belief in the resurrection? There are many who reject the idea that we will rise up from the grave. There are uh, many materialists, many atheists, many naturalists who insist that once this body is dead, we just become worm dirt and it's all over. We take a dirt nap and that's it. That's, it's all done. Yeah, there are those who believe that. Is that belief justified, epistemologically speaking? Well, knowing that we have these questions about the afterlife, which aren't easily answered, they, they fall beyond the scope of natural science we can rejoice in knowing that there is plenty of epistemological evidence which is able to justify the Christian belief in the biblical doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, with this as the focus, I want to consider an argument that Paul presents here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 13, here Paul declares, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men 
the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Wow. Paul here is presenting an epistemological argument for the biblical doctrine of the resurrection. And just to be clear here, Paul was presenting the proof for our resurrection by appealing to the fact that Christ Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's, he's, he's effectively saying Jesus rose from the, from the dead. Therefore, we can believe everything that he said about the resurrection. Simply put, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus provides us with the epistemological evidence that we need to justify the Christian belief in the resurrection. Jesus promised our resurrection and proved it by rising up from the grave. And in light of this argument, we should take a moment to ask, well, is there enough evidence for us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Is there enough evidence for us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And with this question in mind, I want to back up and consider the proof that Paul presents back in the beginning of this chapter found here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you would, let's back up. I want to direct your attention to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 3. Here Paul declares, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, here in these verses, we learn that our, our risen Redeemer not only revealed himself to those two disciples who were headed uh, you know, to Emmaus, but he also appeared to more than 500 people, which included the apostles, and not only the apostles, but this also included those who didn't become believers until after they experienced the infallible proof of Christ's resurrection, like James. Uh, James didn't become a believer in, in Jesus being our Messiah until after his resurrection from the grave. In this way, you know, the Lord Jesus actually provided us with the epistemological evidence that we need to justify our belief in the biblical doctrine of the resurrection. And the reason why is because by his resurrection, he's proven the doctrine of the resurrection. Therefore, our belief in the resurrection is completely justified. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, the perfect proof of the resurrection not only includes epistemological evidence, but the perfect proof of the resurrection also includes empirical evidence. Now, with this as the focus, I want to make our way back to Luke chapter 24. Uh, so if you will, let's turn, turn back to our text today. Here we find the Lord Jesus providing his apostles with the perfect proof that comes from empirical evidence. If you would look with me again, beginning at verse uh, 36 there. Here Luke writes, now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened 
and suppose they have seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's appearing in the room there where the apostles were hiding for fear of the Jews. But rather than immediately rejoicing in the resurrection of Jesus, they were terrified. They, they, they were frightened. And, and the reason why is because they thought that they were seeing uh, maybe a ghost or some sort of evil spirit. They started to, to you know, uh, think uh, all kinds of uh, weird thoughts. You know, they probably thought that, oh, this is an evil spirit masquerading as Jesus. And as we consider their reaction and the way that they were terrified and frightened, it's important for us to remember that the Lord Jesus had already given these guys power and authority over every evil spirit. He had given them power and authority over every evil spirit. So there's no reason for these guys to be afraid. And yet they were. It's for this reason that the Lord challenged them there in verse 38 by asking, why are you troubled? Why are you troubled? He asks, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now that word trouble was translated from a Greek word which refers to the agitations that cause anxiety. And that word doubt, well, it's translated from a Greek word which in this context refers to the perverse opinions of carnal reasoning. Simply put, the apostles were not only agitated with anxiety by this appearance of our Savior, but, but they were also allowing their vain imaginations to create worst-case scenarios, which resulted in a mental stronghold of unbelief. That being the case, the Lord Jesus encouraged them to take a moment to examine the evidence. He gave them the opportunity to examine the evidence of his resurrection. As a matter of fact, look with me again there, beginning at verse 39. Here again, Jesus declares, behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's now encouraging his apostles to behold the empirical evidence of his resurrection. And just to be clear, you know, when he says behold, that word behold in verse 39, it's actually translated from a Greek word, which was used of those who examine something with their eyes. So he says, hey, look at me, behold me. Not only that, but the same word was also used of those who become acquainted with something by an experience. Therefore, we can be certain that the Lord Jesus was providing his apostles with the visual proof that he was, in fact, risen from the grave. I like the Apostle John's account of this appearance. is actually in the 20th chapter of his gospel account. There John writes, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, according to John's account here, the, the fear that filled the hearts of the apostles quickly turned 
into the joy of Jesus after the Lord presented them with the empirical proof of his physical resurrection. Just to be clear, this evidence was shown in his hands where the nail prints were still seen as well as in his feet where the prints of the nails remained. And not only that, but he shows them his side where the Roman spear had pierced him in the heart. And as the Lord is inviting them to behold this empirical evidence, he takes it a step further and he invites them to handle him with their hands. As a matter of fact, uh, look with me again there at verse 39. Here again, the Lord Jesus declares, behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Now that word handle is translated from a Greek word which refers to the sense of touch that comes from uh, physical contact. And from this we can see here that the Lord Jesus was presenting his apostles with the empirical evidence that would provide them with the perfect proof that he has physically risen up from the dead. And while there are those who believe that the resurrection of Jesus was spiritual in nature and not physical, we can be certain that the physicality of our Savior's risen body has been empirically proven. To further prove my point, I want to consider the empirical proof that Jesus presented to the Apostle Thomas. And with this as the focus, hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 20. Now, as you make your way to the 20th chapter of John's Gospel account, I just want to take a moment to point out that, the, uh, that when, I, when I refer to empirical evidence, I'm, I'm referring to the information that's obtained through observation, uh, through documentation, uh, and, and through experimentation. And, and empirical evidence refers to the evidence that we directly observe uh, by use of our senses. Uh, therefore, when Jesus encouraged his apostles to examine his risen body, he's providing them with a way to empirically test his resurrection. Now, with this in mind, if you would uh, look with me here at John chapter 20. I want to begin reading there at verse 24, because here we learn that Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually inviting this, this apostle named Thomas to physically examine the wounds from his crucifixion. In this way, we can see how our risen redeemer was providing him with perfect proof of his physical resurrection. He actually tells Thomas, hey, t take your finger and, and put it into these nail holes. Take your hand, stick it in my side here. That's just gross. <laughs> and we don't know if Thomas actually did or not. But the Lord Jesus was saying, hey, go hands on here. 
Test it for yourself. He was providing him with perfect proof of his physical resurrection. And, you know, we don't have the same opportunity to engage in the same sort of empirical examination here in, in, in our world today. But, but listen, we do have the trustworthy testimony of those who were able to put this proof to the test there in the first century. And to make my case, I want to consider the testimonies of both John and Peter, you know, the first two apostles who ran to the tomb and found it empty. Let's first consider John's uh, John's testimony here in First John chapter 1, the Apostle John declares that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Here in these verses, we find the apostle John, he's assuring his audience about the empirical proof of our savior's resurrection. And according to John, the apostles examined the evidence with their own eyes. And not only that, they handled him with their hands. Now you might be wondering, can we trust the testimony of John? And, and if that's what you're wondering, then I'll help you to remember that the apostle John was willing to die for his testimony. He was even stuck in a vat of boiling oil because he would not recant his faith in Jesus Christ. And, you know, the Lord spared him from that death. He was pulled out of the, the vat of boiling oil and sent to the island Patmos. And it was there where John wrote the book of Revelation and yet John was willing to die in that vat of boiling oil because he would not recant his testimony in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here he's saying, we handled him with our hands. He's not saying, yeah, I saw him from across the room. You know, I think I saw, you know, something online about Jesus, you know, no, no, no. He's saying we handled him. We know that this is true. And he was willing to die for it. I would also appeal to the point that Peter made in second Peter chapter one. It's in verse 16 where Peter declares, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here in this verse, we find the apostle Peter assuring his audience that the resurrection of Jesus Christ wasn't some fable that they cooked up around the campfire. Peter wasn't making up mythology about our Messiah. No, instead, he was an eyewitness of our Savior's resurrection. And if you're wondering about the trustworthiness of Peter's testimony, let me remind you, Peter was crucified and even requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy enough to be crucified in the same way as Christ Jesus. But he was crucified upside down because he was unwilling to recant his faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That being the case, we can be confident about the empirical evidence of Christ's resurrection because the people who examined the body, they were willing to die for the message of the resurrection. Now this brings us to our third and final point because listen, the perfect proof of the resurrection not only includes epistemological evidence and empirical evidence, 
But the proof of the, uh, uh, the perfect proof of the resurrection also includes emotional evidence. And to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 24. Here in Luke 24, we find the Lord Jesus. He's providing his apostles with the perfect proof of emotional evidence. And if you would look with me, we'll pick up our study of Luke 24, beginning at verse 41. Here Luke writes, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now this is my kind of savior. (laughs) The kind of savior who rises up from the dead and says, let's eat. (laughs) I love that. But Luke here is describing the way that the apostles were still struggling to believe. And the reason why well, it's because they were experiencing emotional overload. As a matter of fact, you know, when Luke tells us here that they still not, did not believe for joy, it's like, what does that mean? They did not believe for joy. Well, Luke here is actually informing us that they were so overwhelmed by joy that they thought this must be too good to be true. Have you ever been so happy about a situation that you're just like, I I can't even believe this is real. Like, you know, pinch me kind of thing. And and, and that's what I think that these guys were experiencing. They're they're so overfilled with joy that they can't even believe it's true. They they marveled with amazement as, as they wondered, how can these things be real? Now, with all this in mind, I want to take a moment to consider the emotional roller coaster that these guys had experienced in a relatively short amount of time. Remember, these guys followed Jesus for three years. And in that final year, as they made their way to Jerusalem, these guys were convinced that Jesus was going to claim the crown of King David. They were debating about which one of them would sit on the right hand and which one would sit on the left as Jesus ruled over Jerusalem. So as they're heading to Jerusalem, you know, their emotions are, 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 are overwhelmed with, you know, this idea of we're going we're gonna to go to Jerusalem and, and, and take charge of everything. We're going to run the Romans out of here. And after arriving, they watched the guy that they had followed for three years, arrested, beaten, nailed to a cross, and die. How do you process that alone? Uh, Just imagine, you know, just what you're going through as you're watching the guy that you thought was just about to become king of Israel being buried in a tomb. And then they heard from the women reports about a resurrection and and they couldn't believe it. They immediately rejected that. And then the two guys show up and say, yeah, we saw Jesus too. And they're like, no way. And in the moment they were rejecting the two guys from Emmaus, Jesus just shows up in the room. And so they've gone from, we're going to take over Jerusalem to Jesus is dead to Jesus is alive. What? What an emotional roller coaster. I have no doubt that these guys were overwhelmed with emotion as they tried to process what they were witnessing with their own eyes. Well, thankfully for them, rather than leaving these guys in this state of shock, the Lord presents them with uh, the perfect proof of emotional evidence. And, And to explain what I mean, notice again, it's in verse 41 where he asks, do you have any food here? Do you have any food here? Now think about that. They're still wrestling with the idea. Is this a, is this a ghost? Is this a spirit? Is this real? 
Listen, if Jesus were a ghost, he wouldn't be asking for food. If this were some evil spirit, he wouldn't be asking for, for food. You know, the, this request for food was actually perfect proof of our Savior's physical resurrection. How else could he eat? At the same time, I also believe that this was the Lord's way of providing them with an ability to calm down and emotionally process what they were seeing. To explain my point, I want to take a moment to consider a report that was recently released by the American Heart Association. You know, according to their research, 91% of American parents say that their family is less stressed when they take the time to share meals together. Now, my parents wouldn't have said that. My parents would have been part of the 9% that are just kind of like, no, we we try to stay away from those kids as much as possible. But 91% of American parents say that their family is less stressed out when they just simply share meals together. It's incredible. The same study has shown that sharing meals with others is a great way to reduce stress. You know, if you're always stressed out about stuff, you know, I, I would say, hey, Spend some time just having a meal with, with friends. Just, just take some time to go, you know, have a meal with friends and, and hang out. That's what I started doing after I got saved. I just, I just started hanging out with people and eating and eating. And then 400 pounds later, I was like, I have no stress at all. But in light of this research, I can't help but to wonder... Did Jesus understand that, you know, turning their attention to a meal would actually calm them down and provide them a way to just kind of get rid of the anxiety and, and, and grab a hold of the emotional roller coaster and just hang out together and, and get, you know, catch up on, on what's happening here? With this question of mine, you know, I, I can't help but to think of something that Jesus promised in Revelation chapter 3. There he declares, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and teach him theological lessons that, oh wait, no, that's not what it says. I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Christian, listen, our risen redeemer is inviting us to have a relationship with him. He's inviting us to enjoy the emotional intimacy that occurs as friends sit down and share a meal together. He wants to come in and dine with us. Simply put, Christ Jesus wants those who trust in him to enjoy daily communion with him. And in this way, the indwelling spirit of our Savior provides us with perfect peace as we continue to wait for the day when we will rise up from the grave and celebrate where? At the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't know what's going to be served. I'm guessing it's not Lamb. But... uh, but think about that for a moment. The, the, what we're looking forward to, according to the scriptures, is to rise up and attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. I love that. With that, I can't help but to wonder, 
is this concept of dining together and eating together and having supper together. Is this, is this the Lord's way of helping us to have peace while we're here in this world? No doubt that there are many things to be troubled about while we're here in this world. Many trials that we experience each and every day. And yet the Lord would come to us and say, don't be troubled. Be at peace. That's what he said when he showed up and they're all freaked out. What did he say? Peace to you. He wants us to have peace. I like the way that Jesus put it in John chapter 14. It's there where he declares, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the father for my father is greater than I. From this, we can see that the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ is supposed to provide those who trust in him with peace of mind. And while it's true that we still face the troubles and the trials of this world, those who will simply trust in the resurrection, uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will have that perfect peace that surpasses all understanding. And the reason why is because no matter what's happening in the world today, and no matter what trials we're facing in this life, we can look forward to what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. No matter how bad things get in this world, we have a hope in the future. As we long for the day when we will attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. Until that day comes, the Lord says he wants to dine with us each and every day. He wants to commune with us each and every day. And as we commune with Christ Jesus each and every day, the peace of God fills our hearts. And as that peace fills our hearts, I'm here to tell you, it's emotional evidence that our Savior is alive. That he has risen. Think about it. If everything happening in the world around us is going wrong, if everything around us is falling apart and we're watching our, in, you know, our, our retirement fund you know, disappearing right before our very eyes and we're wondering how we're going to make it you know, through the next month's bills and all these sorts of things and everything's going wrong and, and, and there's anxiety that's building up in our hearts and all of a sudden there's just this overwhelming peace that we can't explain. Where do you think that comes from? if not our risen Redeemer. This peace that calms our emotions is clearly evidence that our Savior is risen. That being the case, we would do well to apply the advice that Paul presented in his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. If you would, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as you make your way to the fourth chapter of First Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to point out, you know, when, that, that when it comes to the questions about the afterlife, uh, there are many who struggle with fear. Many have hearts that are filled with fear as our minds try to make sense of life everlasting. I wrestle with this, you know, trying to get my mind around living forever is just weird. I can't figure it out. And so it, it can be a source of anxiety. Then there are those who are afraid that they'll simply cease to exist 
once this life is over. And they're filled with fear as they uh, consider the afterlife as well. But regardless of the exact reason for our anxieties, the, the fact is that thoughts about the afterlife can fill our hearts with fear. And it's for this reason that Paul encourages us to comfort one another with the biblical truth of the resurrection. I want to consider how he puts it here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 13. Here Paul declares, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore... Comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Paul here is pointing to this day when every believer will rise up in the resurrection. And regardless of whether we die before the rapture or we're part of the blessed believers who rise up in that, in that incredible event, you know, the, the fact still remains for both groups that those who trust in Jesus Christ, those who trust in his death and his burial, and his resurrection will eventually enter everlasting glory as we spend the rest of eternity with the one who loves us with an everlasting love. And according to Paul, we should comfort one another with the biblical doctrine of the resurrection. I like the way that Jesus put it in John chapter 14. It's here where he declares, let not your heart be troubled. He didn't say, let your heart be troubled. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. From this, we can see that those who trust in Jesus Christ we will eventually be received into this mansion made by our Messiah. That's right, our heavenly home, it's this incredible mansion which will be more glorious than the most beautiful homes that are here on the earth. You know, when I was a kid, we watched Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with, I think the guy's name was Robin Leach. We would look at all these incredible homes and just think, oh, that'd be nice. Chances are you're, you're younger, maybe you grew up watching Cribs. Same basic thing. And, and we would see these incredible homes and just think, oh, that'd be nice. And a lot of us determined to, you know, somehow afford these sorts of properties. And so we were working really hard towards that. And meanwhile, watching a lot of that money just disappearing right before our very eyes. And, and if you're struggling because you don't have the home that you were hoping you would have by this point in your life, I'm here to tell you, I've got an, an incredible mansion waiting for us. The Lord Jesus is preparing this incredible home for those who trust in him. And it's going to be way better than any mansion here on this planet. 
I don't know how your retirement plan is doing. Mine's gone. At least the one here in this world. But I've got an incredible retirement plan in the everlasting. I've got an everlasting retirement plan in the afterlife. And you can too by faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord has revealed that he's preparing a mansion for us where we will dwell with him forevermore. And according to the Lord, this is a place where there's going to be no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. All of these things will be gone because the former things will have passed away as our creator makes all things new. And how do I know that? Because this is a promise that Jesus presents. And Jesus has given us the perfect proof to believe in these things by his own resurrection from the grave. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, it's my hope that we'll all begin to realize that the infallible proofs that prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ should also provide us with the perfect proof that we need so that we can believe everything that Jesus taught about the afterlife. Listen, if you're still struggling to believe in these things, then I encourage you to remember that the perfect proof of the resurrection, it includes the epistemological evidence that Jesus presented when he rose up from the grave on the third day, uh, just like he promised he would. He promised he would, and then he did it. And now this justifies our belief in the resurrection. The perfect proof of the resurrection also includes the empirical evidence that Jesus presented as he encouraged his apostles to physically examine the wounds that he received when he died for our sins there on the cross. And finally, the perfect proof of the resurrection includes the emotional evidence that Jesus presents uh, when he uh, returned to share a meal with his disciples after rising up from the grave. And in this way, we can see how we have emotional evidence every time he fills our hearts with his perfect peace. And as we consider the way that Jesus presents himself as being alive with these many infallible proofs, we can rejoice in knowing that Jesus is in fact the resurrection and the life, just as he taught. Not only that, but we can take comfort in knowing that our risen redeemer has promised to provide the same resurrection to those who trust in him. Therefore, the perfect proof that proves the resurrection of our Savior Jesus, it's the perfect proof that also proves all of the promises that Christ Jesus has presented to those who trust in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Let's pray.